I titled this message today, Sight to the Blind, or Sight for the Blind. Depends on the translation. It's, I'll get to where that came from in a minute. But I think that uh, Psalm 34, 17, 18 says this. The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears them. He delivers them from all their troubles. And then verse 18 says, The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. I wanted to start with that because I believe that um, we're in difficult times in our country and in the world, and um, not just pandemic-related, definitely in our country, um, experiencing extreme racial tension. And um, it might be, if you're like me, um, you're praying, God, what do you feel and what do you think in these times? And therefore, what should I do? What should we do about it? And um, it can be very difficult to see because it's like I am blind and I need Jesus to give me sight to see what's really going on. Because oftentimes Jesus would teach and then he would say, for those who have ears, let him hear or, you know, talking about eyes to see. And, I, and I, we need, as believers, as followers of Jesus, eyes to see. And there's a couple things I wanted to say about that, about difficult times and seeing. Because um, reading this scripture, I think, gives a little package of what God's heart is like towards current events. The righteous cry out and the Lord hears them. He delivers them from all their troubles. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted, and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. And I'm going to leave that up to your interpretation. In difficult times, I want you to remember three things when you're looking at the news or looking at what's going on and trying to understand what's important, what's really happening. You can be, at the same time, right about details of an event and not right in your conclusion. This happens all the time. I've done it. You've done it. We've all done it. Another thing to remember is more than one thing can be true at once. So it, when you're looking at the details of a situation, you might be tempted to go, that's why this happened. When in fact it could be some other reason. And what you also noticed could also be true. There's a quote, I believe, from Abraham Lincoln, it just pops in my mind, um, during the Civil War, if this isn't Abraham Lincoln, somebody at home is going to Google it and, you know, act like they knew. <laughs> but <laughs> either way, somebody important at that time, I believe it was Abraham Lincoln, was commenting on the fact that it was very publicized that, uh, that um, it was a very religious time in our country. Christianity would be a dominant religion of our country, the worldview of Christianity would be how most people thought. And during the Civil War, there was accounts from both sides of important people, generals, presidents, these types of people, telling people they felt that God had raised them up for such a time as this. I am here because God put me here. This is Union people and Confederate people. They both felt I was acting on God's behalf. And Abraham Lincoln, who was a lawyer, was looking at this, and I believe it was him, again, commented, both of us may be, but at least one of us must be wrong. And I think he's exhibiting kind of what I'm saying here. More than one thing can be true at the same time, and more than one thing can be wrong at the same time. It's not right to say that just because, and he knew this, it wasn't right for him to say that just because I think the Confederate states that have rebelled against our country are wrong, that I am therefore acting on God's behalf. He's saying we both could be wrong. You know, I feel like I'm acting on God's behalf, but so do they. But he also did know that it wasn't possible for us both to be doing this and be in right standing with God. You see what I'm saying? So you have to be able to think in that type of level. But most importantly, what I want to spend time talking about today is you can't see what you can't see. And this is where God comes in and the Holy Spirit comes in. So... 
what do we do as Christians in a time like this? Jesus uses the term apostles to describe his followers, which means sent ones. And in the Bible, the language he's using is the same as they would use in like a business transaction. Like I might send a representative to, or James has a business, and he might send me to make a deal with somebody in St. Augustine or something. I don't know why he would do that. That would be a bad idea. But if he did, I would be acting on his behalf. I'm not acting on my own behalf. I'm acting on his behalf with his interest in mind and, and making decisions for, you see what I'm saying? And like that, that is how we are for, the, for Jesus in the kingdom of God. We're not here on our own accord. And we're not here telling our own story. We're here telling his story. We're acting on his behalf. He calls us sent ones. You say, well, what did he send us to do? And you can have pictures of this into the Great Commission of Matthew 28, 19. Therefore, go, and 19 and 20. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always until the very end of the age. It's like, well, what is he teaching everything I have commanded you? What is that? You know, and I, you look back a little further in Matthew 10, 7, he's sending out the disciples to go do some ministry. And he says something very similar to this. As you go, proclaim the message. The kingdom of heaven is near. Heal the sick. This is a commandment from, Je from Jesus. Heal the sick. Raise the dead. Cleanse those who have leprosy. Drive out demons. Freely you have been given. Freely give. Why would Jesus think it's reasonable to say the kingdom of heaven is near and to tell his followers to heal the sick and raise the dead, cleanse those that have leprosy, and drive out demons? Because freely they have been given this. You can look further back when Jesus is describing his mission, which as our leader is then through these other chain of events, our mission Jesus in Luke 4, 16 through 21, is the beginning of his public ministry. He stands up. He went to. It says this in verse 16. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was the, his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, "The Spirit of Lord, the Spirit of the Lord is on me, because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me." to proclaim freedom to the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to set the oppressed free and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began saying to them, Today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. He's declaring over himself. This is a messianic prophecy, and the people in the room knew that. So he's saying, I'm that guy. My kingdom is this kingdom. And those who follow him are the bearers of this message and this kingdom. That's us. And when he talks about proclaiming good news to the poor, he's talking about both the spiritually poor, which is everyone, and the actual materially poor. Not one or the other. Remember I said more than one thing can be true at the same time? It speaks of freedom to the captives. Sight to the blind, which is what I'm praying for us today. And the year of Jubilee, which was the forgiving of debts in the Jewish law. You can read about it. It was supposed to happen, I believe, every 50 years. They would reset and get forget. I don't know if there was, I think there's a couple examples of them actually abiding by it. But generally it was kind of overlooked because it was pretty costly. So seeing all of this, what am I trying to say? Looking at our current events, and you kind of have like that old prayer, what would Jesus do? It's very hard to discern. It's hard to discern often. It's not always very simple, like this is the obvious right thing to do, and I'm choosing to not do that because I'm a bad person. Those things happen, and you know that. But it's also very hard to know. You know, you know there's lots of times where it's, it's unclear because we don't have the proper sight so you look at something like what's going on now in our country and the issue of racism in our country. Racism is anti-gospel, is anti-Jesus, and it's, it's evil. But the fact that that's easy for you to see and easy for me to see is because of the work of hundreds of people who suffered for a very long time. You're not just born knowing that. You're a product 
of your upbringing. You're a product of your community. You're a product of all of that work all those people have done. You don't just get that. And this is leading into the point that I'm really going to talk about. When you look at American history and the issue of racism, specifically either racism towards African-American people or Native Americans, and what um, the United States of America has done to these people groups and the atrocities and all this sort of thing, it might, it's, 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 it's horrible by itself. But what should be more horrifying to us is the role the church has played in that all those years. And it's true. It's both true that at the same time, most of the abolitionists in pre-Civil War times and such were Christians and were driven by their faith in Jesus to proclaim freedom to the captives. But it's also true at the same time that perhaps an even greater majority of the Christian people of that day were fighting against them. And I don't mean always literally fighting like in the war, but I mean like ideologically fighting them. They claimed they believed the same thing. I suspect as they stand before God, they found out they were wrong. I suspect God is merciful. But at the same time, that should bring a sense of, I don't, I don't, I don't know, lament to our hearts. These things aren't simple. So I'm going to talk to you about two subjects that I think push a lot of buttons for white people in America, all right? And that's these two things, corporate sin and system, systematic evil, or systemic evil, sorry. And I listened to a very good teaching by Tim Keller about this, who's a pastor out of New York City, and uh, very helpful. But I'm going to break down some of, the, some of the issues with this and why I'm talking about sight to the blind, especially if you're an American, especially if you're a white American who's grown up in the United States. These things do apply to any Christian person anywhere, but different cultures have different lenses. You understand what I'm saying? There's a term that people use when they talk about looking into one culture from another culture and trying to understand what they're doing. And misunderstanding, specifically, you might, they call it cultural myopia, which would be kind of like me thinking that because I'm bothered by something because of the upbringing I've had, that then anybody who's reasonable should be bothered by that same thing. So I would look at a different culture. They do something differently. That's offensive to me. They're wrong. Okay? We have to humble ourselves, especially as Americans and especially as white Americans, to realize the fact that an idea like corporate sin seems very offensive to most of us because we really value individualism and a meritocracy, meaning... I can achieve whatever I want out of my own, you know. And these are our American values. They're good. Like, we've brought this to the world. There's a reason that we started our democratic government and other countries have been copying it because it works really well, you know. But at the same time, that that is true, and we should be proud of that. There are these other things that have happened. at the, so You see what I'm saying? Two things can be true at once. And since we value individualism so much, the self-made man so much, or self-made woman so much, it's hard for us to see corporate sin as something that makes sense. But it was not foreign to the people in the biblical times. The Bible talks about this. And Tim Keller says, and I, I can't, I can't like, say I've done the work to prove this, but he says it's arrogant of us to think that things in the Bible offend us that wouldn't and don't offend most cultures of the world and didn't offend people at the times of the Bible. Saying if you're reading about something that God is doing and it offends you, you need to at least humble yourself to realize it's very, very probably your cultural myopia that's causing that. <laughs> so the idea of corporate sin, we are really good in the church in America specifically of talking about Jesus' work on the cross of freeing us from our individual sin. That makes perfect sense to us. You know, amazing grace, how sweet the sound has saved a wretch like me. All this is very personal. And it's correct to think that way. But you can look through the Bible and you find stories of individuals' actions having corporate 
cost. And other cultures understand this better, that my actions are partly due to my behavior, like my wiring behavior and all that, but it's also partly due to my upbringing. It's partly what my parents taught me. It's partly all, it, there's like this weird collective thing that starts to happen where when I do something, it reflects on all of us. And therefore, even if you didn't do it, you're sort of involved, you see? You find examples of this in like Joshua 7, they're taking the promised land and God says, do not take any of this stuff. And this one guy, when they're plundering, goes, this is some nice stuff. His name's Achan and he keeps it and he puts it away. Doesn't tell anyone, he just hides it. The next time they go to fight, people get killed everywhere. And Joshua's like, yo, God, um, I thought you were on our side, and now we're dying. Like, well, I don't understand. You just tore our whole city down, and now we're fighting people, and they're winning? Like, I don't get this. God tells him what happened. This, there's somebody in this group that didn't obey me. So if you want to honestly look at a story like that, there's people who died because this other guy did this thing. Now, as an American individualistic person, that bothers me. But as a Bible-believing person, it should make sense. You see other examples of this in Daniel 9. Now, this is a good way into this. <laughs> it's actually funny. Kayla decided to sing that Thousand Generations song today. Okay, Daniel 9, you can read, he feels compelled to repent for sins of his people and his nation that he did not commit. But he must repent before God, and it's right for him to do so. Not symbolically actually repent on behalf of his people. But he also claims all the good stuff. Well, God, you blessed us. And God, you, you know, it's not just the bad stuff at play. It's also the good stuff. And we sing a song. Like You can't sit in this room or on the Internet in your house and sing a song about God blessing you and your children and your children's children and your children's children's children. The Bible talks about God blessing to thousand generations, like the song's about. But it also talks about him sending curses down to the third and fourth generation. It makes a point that God's blessings go much further and all this kind of thing. But don't skip the part that God's curses can be sent down. It's a picture of corporate sin. To us, to me, that's offensive. To a Christian, it shouldn't be. Do you understand what I'm saying? And in Romans 5, you have probably the most theological example of this. There are plenty of others. But the thing is, if you have the lenses to see it, you can understand what I'm talking about. In Romans 5, Paul's starting to make the point of Adam's sin. I'll just read it to you. Romans 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, Adam, and death through, and death through sin, and this way, death, and in this way. Sorry, I don't read that loud very well. <laughs> Let me start over Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. So all human beings are born into sin because of this one guy. Now this goes on to talk about how Jesus even more so can save everyone if sin comes through. So that's good. <laughs> but if you only see this individually, you're missing at least half of it, you know, maybe more. So corporate sin is a biblical concept. How we deal with it is the same. And we'll get to that at the end. Another thing that's a hot-button issue for everybody is systemic evil. And here's the definition that Tim Keller gave. I like this. A system that excludes and marginalizes people on the basis of race, even though most of the individuals in the system are not probably trying to intentionally do it. I'll read it again because this is an important thing. A system that ex excludes or marginalizes people on the basis of race, even though most of the individuals in the system are not probably trying to intentionally do it. Or you could even just say are not trying to intentionally do it. This is the hardest. Because you have to look within where you are to see it. And this is the most offensive to most white people when they say, I didn't, for example, in this racial issue, I didn't own slaves. I didn't do anything. 
that's it's, it's evidencing the blindness of this. I'm not saying at all, <laughs> at all, I'm going to skip ahead. Um, I'm not saying at all that you should feel guilty for who God made you to be. If you were born white, God wanted you that way. If you were born black, God wanted you that way. If you were born Asian, it doesn't matter. If you're from any part of the world, God has crafted you. And there's no, time, no place for shame in that. You are not... You, you are, the ra- you, you, are, you are who God made you to be. You are the race he made you to be. You are the person he made you to be. You are not who you feel. You are not who other people say you are. You're not who you are attracted to. And you're not the image that you try to project to others. You are who God made you to be. So in none of this should you have shame for being who God made you to be. But the system still might remain. I will give an example. The Holocaust in Germany, which we as Americans like to wipe our hands of because we're not German. Just like Northern Americans like to wipe their hands of racism and slavery because they're not Southern. And if you're going to do that, fine. But you're lying to yourself. Because in the Holocaust, there was a system. And in the system, there are people that know what's going on. And I would argue they're more culpable, okay? But there's a lot of other people around. And in a system like the Holocaust, which killed 6 million people, mostly Jewish people, profiled Racially, there was people at the top that were executing this event. They know what they're doing. And they're giving orders to other ordinary soldiers and guards and people who are just following orders. They're not maybe even wanting to do this. They may know the whole time that it's evil, but they're scared to say anything or do anything about it, and the system moves on. Then there's people who ran the towns that the camps were by. And they kind of knew what was going on, but a lot of them tried to turn it like, yeah, that's none of my business because they knew what was happening, but they didn't say anything or do anything. And then there was just citizens in those towns that sort of knew. And when they found out at the end, a lot of them committed suicide because just over that wall, several thousand people were murdered and you didn't care and you sort of knew. And I'm not saying any individual could have done something, but we celebrate as Christians people like Corey Ten Boom and other people who did do something. And they were motivated by their faith to do something. But the vast majority of Christians in Germany during World War II were fighting as Nazis because that's just what you do. And as Americans, we fought against them. And as Americans, we could probably say, I feel called by God to do so, but like Abraham Lincoln, they might be feel called by God to do so, and we might have to say, we both may be, but one must be wrong. But we don't get a pass, because we have more in common with the Christians of Germany during the World War II period than we do with non-believers in our own country. I know this is kind of heavy, but... It's just the way it is. You have to try to see things. You're not just going to get it. And you have to pray that God would open your eyes. If you don't understand something, that doesn't mean that everything everybody else is doing makes sense and is right. You have to hear what I'm saying. There are people acting out of sin. But in a situation like racial injustice in this country, if the church at large, like in Germany, is going to say, that's none of my business, other people will fill the gaps. You may not like how they handle it. And they probably won't do a great job, but at least they're doing something. So how does the gospel address this? First, the gospel allows us to see corporate guilt at all for most of us. Secondly, the gospel changes our identity so that we are less sucked into the culture around us, which tends to be racist. That's, that's another Tim Keller quote. I thought that was really good. That why would you suspect that culture, like you believe God has saved us and the darkness of the world we needed to be saved from. Why would you assume that a culture left under its own is going to not be. 
The other thing is this, if we're not willing to take action, people, that, people will, the woke people, and they're going to tend to be very self-righteous about it, which is destructive of any sort of progress. If you are a believer, we should be setting people free and giving sight to the blind in metaphoric and real ways. <laughs> and if we're not going to do it, other people are going to do it. But they're going to do it in self-righteous ways that are usually offensive to all sorts of progress. And we'll stand back and blame or get angry about it. So how do I respond? Sandy gave me a quote from her husband. If he had said, diversity is a glimpse of heaven. Pastor Jeff and I have talked about for years that it's probably wrong if you would classify our church as a white church in the community that we're in. Now, if we were in the middle of Iowa or something and there's only white people, I mean, you, you, get, you know, but in a community like this, like you go down my road, it's whatever, anybody you can think of racially. And that our church is almost entirely white people is probably sinful, or it's at least not the best. And so it's a goal of ours, and it has been for a while, to be more diverse. It's a difficult road to walk, but we'll find a way there. Because those of us that want to just separate, and I'm not, it's very, these are very complicated issues about church and church history and church example. And, you know, it's, it's not so simple to just throw everybody in the same pot like Jeff was saying. This isn't like a Nilla wafer thing, which Jeff said vanilla wafer. It's actually Nilla wafer. So I'm just kidding. But uh, I guess it's hyphenated. So anyway. Um, Point being, it's not like you invite all, you know, anybody else and they come and they just act like white people. It's not like that, you know, and it might not be even wrong for us to have churches that have cultural difference. I'm not saying it that way, but I do feel called that in a pastor in this community, our church should reflect the community. So I will just say that, okay? The rest of the church is going to have to figure out what the rest of the church is going to do. But can I give you a real example like, are you guys okay with getting really real? Because I'm telling you the truth, but I'm going to give you a really real example. And this is difficult for me. I was watching, in 2006 or so, I was watching a show um, during Black History Month by a man named Henry Louis Gates. He's, so, he's gone on to do this with lots of famous people. He makes these shows where, through research and DNA testing, they take people and go through their, um, their history and their ancestors and that kind of thing, and then through those people tell stories of America. And he did a series initially, I believe in like 2006 or something, um, called African American Lives. And so he started with some famous people, T.D. Jakes and um, Maya Angelou and stuff. And they would go through and, you know, Go back, your dad did this, your mom did this, and then further and further and further and further. And then they would get to a spot where they couldn't go anymore because they don't have the paper records anymore. But it was just at the beginning of all this DNA stuff, and they're like, we can really look into your history here. And, for example, like T.D. Jakes, they could pinpoint, you are from these people in Africa. And he said, that's really funny. <laughs> And they're like, why? And he's like, we've always known that. It's like somehow that there was a whisper of that that had passed down his whole family tree to him, and he had known that. And then he said the funnier thing was now that he's a big famous preacher person, he goes over to Africa, and the people over there are like, you're obviously one of us. Like, look at you. And he's like, well, I don't know. I mean, you know, I'm American and all. Like, and they're like, so he's like, I guess I have some people I need to apologize to because he's like, you guys are my people, you know. And it dawned on me while I was watching this show, I was like, man, I don't know really anything about my family, like, at all. But I was compelled by the show. I was like, man, I'm going to look this up, you know? So I started looking it up. And with the internet and census records, and it's not so hard anymore. You know, you can just kind of start going back. And then every generation you go back, the number of lines you have, to, it's kind of an endless. I don't know if you, you probably have people in your family that got into this stuff. And, like, it, it doesn't end because... You know, I have one last name, but then my parents, now there's two, and then their parents, now there's four. And every time you go back, there's another entire line of people that you can 
search. But a certain weightiness comes to that when you start to think about some of this stuff I'm talking about here. Especially, if you, like me, are from the southern United States. Especially if you, like me, have been from the southern United States from about as long as people, European people have been from the southern United States. And I want to show you a document that I found while I was just looking up my family and trying to find people. So show them the first, the first page. This document I ran into, and hit the second one, because I don't know if you can, you can't read this. So tell me what you see here. Schedule two, slave inhabitants. This is my family. I was going through these records. They're just census documents, like the census we just took, done by the same government that did this census in 1860. Schedule one is the list of the family members. That's what I was used to seeing. I didn't know there was a schedule two till I scrolled down. I was like, what is schedule two? Oh, slave inhabitants. And the man I was related to owned 36 people. I thought of this document yesterday, and I pulled it back up. Go to the next slide. I want to show you something. You, don't, you, can't, you might not be able to read this cursive and everything. Column one is age. These two people are one year old in 1860. So they might be less than one. They're just babies. Column two is female. It's an F. Column three is race, and it's black. The wide column to the side is no name because they didn't care. It just has the slaveholder's name and then lists off the people. These two women, <laughs> this is in Darien, Georgia. That's not far from here. The man I was related to owned a sawmill. I guess they were lumber people. I didn't look, like I kind of just, these two women were one in 1860. If they lived into their 80s, they were alive in the 1940s. And there's people in this room that were alive in the 1940s. Now, based off anything I've shared this far, do you think there's any guilt in my family for this? And did I do anything? And do you think that we're that far removed from that, that whatever happened in these women's lives doesn't affect their children and their children's children? I'm not saying we should all walk around and, you know, we should be victorious and free because of what God has done. That's actually the good news of this message. I don't have to carry this burden because Jesus died for it. But I have to acknowledge the fact this happened in my family. And I can't get the pass that some people get because, well, good thing I was born in Ohio. Where there just aren't racists for some reason. Or good thing I'm an American because I wasn't a Nazi. Talk to some Christians that are living for the Lord and giving their lives for the gospel that are descendant. Their granddad was a Nazi. Does that make them any less likely for God to use them? Leave that up there. The good news of the gospel to corporate sin is the same as the good news of the gospel to, to individual sin. There's nothing you can do about it. But Jesus can wipe that away. And then what you do from that is up to God. I'm not going to stand up here and tell you like, hey guys, Trust me, I'm 38 and I figured out how to solve racism in America. Let me give you a few quick points. I have no clue. But I know that me deleting this file wouldn't help. And the other thing is this. What do you think happened to me the moment I saw that? Do you think at that moment I became the descendant of slaveholders? Or do you think I always was and I just didn't know? 
there are kids in the room, so I'm going to be careful. But there's another piece of this document, which is even more disturbing. If you know anything about slavery in America, it's very often common. And if you read, and I highly recommend that you do, Frederick Douglass's autobiography that he wrote before the Civil War, because people were like, wow, this black guy can really talk well. He's probably lying. He wasn't a slave. He was like, yeah, okay. So he just wrote a book to prove them all wrong and tell the true story of where he came from with names and stuff. Like, you can go look these people up. They're still there, you know. And in that book, he talked about this kind of moment where he watched. I mean, this, this is oftentimes men that owned slaves would sleep with whoever they wanted to. You understand what I'm saying? And they would have children with these women, and their white wife would be angry. So to appease their white wife, they would sell their children. If I'm remembering correctly, Frederick Douglass was like, this is like, it, like, it, it broke something. And he was like, this, like it's, this already was super evil. But something about, if it'll make people do that, I don't even have an answer for it anymore. It's like, this is, you know. So you find, not just because of this, but where I'm from, a lot of mixed race people. And on this document, there's some of these that literally might be my relatives. And that's also their dad. I listened to a message by a pastor, former NFL player, Derwin Gray, who talked about this. And he talked about when Isaiah saw the Lord in Isaiah 6, he sees the Lord in the temple, high and lifted up. And he said that there's three steps when you encounter something like this, either like the holiness of God, which reveals how <laughs> horrible you are, or just seeing yourself or who you really are and whatever. Like He said three steps. You lament, you repent, and then you're sent. Which you see that illustrated in Isaiah. But I wrote down Isaiah's first response. Because I think part of it might ring a little differently after what I've shared with you. He says, he sees God. Like, sees God. And he's like, oh, no. <laughs> because you can't hide around God. We're so used to hiding and pretending like we can fool people. And half the time you do, somebody probably, you're not fooling God. And the moment you stand before him, you realize that. His response, the prophet, says, woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips. American individualist, we like that, we get that, yep, he's referring. Oh, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Why does that matter? For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. And if you read on there, Isaiah 6, he laments, what can I do as I stand before a holy God with the sin in my life, the sin in my people's lives? What can I do? God says, he take, the sends an angel that takes a coal and touches him and he's made clean. His sins are atoned for by like we, the blood of Jesus atones for our sins, corporate or individual. And then God says, who am I going to send? And he's like, I'll go. And during Gray, Gray laid out the, you lament, you repent, and then you're sent. We are the ones that are supposed to be fixing these problems in Jesus' name. I don't know what you need to do about it, but nothing isn't one of those things. That doesn't mean you need to post everything on Facebook. God help us, please don't. But there are things that might be worth posting from time to time. But nothing isn't one of the options. It's like what Pastor just said last week. It's time to move on from the mountain. Hanging out here is not one of the options. The Lord is up to something. And all that's happened in the last couple of weeks 
did not cause it. It just showed it for what it really is. We were talking in all these church leaders was about 2020 vision, like God give us vision. And it's all, you know, you think of God give us vision so we can see how great we are and how awesome. And that's fine. God does see us that way. But he's like, well, you want vision? I'll show up. Boom. And we go, whoa, for I'm undone. I am unclean lips. And the people I am with are of unclean lips. And I was like, I thought you wanted vision. It's not all great. Look, I'm proud of our country. I'm proud to be an American. I'm proud of the things that we've been able to do. I think we've been a blessing to the world. I do not think that we are a Christian nation in the sense of like Israel has a covenant with God. We do not have that. That doesn't mean God can't use us to bless everyone. I think we've blessed probably, I mean, I haven't done all the research, but we, we take care of a lot of people. At the same time, our country founded itself on, the f- on personal freedoms while leaving slavery intact. And at the same time, taking land from the people who lived here. That's not okay. And God knows that. And I have no idea how to fix it other than as a believer pleading the blood of Jesus over our land in my life and trying to spread the gospel of freedom. There are things that we actually have to do, meaning like in the government and in the systems. You can't stand by passively and get a pass. If, in, unless you think it's okay to be a citizen across the fence from, a, from Dachau when, there, when there's ash from burning bodies landing on your car, like in the movie Schindler's List, and you know what's going on, and if you think that's okay, then you can be passive right now. I don't mean to go be impulsive. I mean to look inside yourself, okay? Don't just turn it on everybody else. I recorded an album over this time of COVID with James and some of these guys, and we'd done a CD last year, and it had on it a kind of partial, por- bleh, partial version of that old song, What Can Wash Away My Sins, Nothing But the Blood of Jesus. But we'd, when we re- ended up recording it, we ended up, like, it was me. It was kind of a live thing, and I skipped the verses when we did that recording. And so I was like, man, I need to um, record that again with the verses. And so I did. And I put it on the album. You can show them. The, the, the album title is God and King. And it just, we, it just got out on iTunes and everything. Um, so if you can, share it with people. That would help me. <laughs> but um, I want us to, at the end of this, just listen to this recording and listen to the words of this song. I think I put the words in as well. So you can play the song and put up the words. And um, when you hear something like this, I pray that you have the courage to look inside yourself. Don't just point fingers at your husband or your wife or your kids or your neighbors or anybody else on Facebook. See, God's talking to you. Or else you're turning into that self-righteous type person that Tim Keller was saying is just destructive to this whole thing. This is serious stuff. And God takes us seriously enough to send us to help fix these kinds of problems. But we have to do it humbly The cross of Jesus humbles us all, and you have to just do not point the finger at someone else. Point it at yourself, and let God search your heart. And if, when you find the sin in your life, lament, repent, and then be sent by God to break the captives free. I'm going to close just by playing this song. If you want to come up and pray, that's fine. Um, but I want you to really listen to these words and sing them over yourself. So go ahead and play it.
the blood of Jesus for my part in this I see nothing but the blood of Jesus the blood of Jesus and more precious is the flow that makes me white as snow and no God is speaking to some of your hearts. And he's opening some of your eyes to things. Things you need to do, things you need to repent of, 
a change in your heart, the kind of thing that only God can do. And if that's you, take it seriously. Listen to what he's saying. And take it seriously enough not to just go sharing it. And I, I'm not, I know we talk a lot about social media, but keep it. If God is doing something serious in your life, take it seriously. And let him do his work. Because it matters that much. There's good news, guys. I know this was heavy. But precious is the flow that makes us white as snow. There's no other kind that I know. So Jesus, we plead your blood over our nation and over us as a church. And we corporately repent of sin, Father, the sin of racism, the sin of hatred, and ask that you use us to be restorers of peace. God wants to use you. He wants to send you. He sent you. Because the spirit of the Lord is upon you. He's anointed you to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent you to proclaim freedom to the prisoners. And recovery of sight to the blind. To set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Lord, let us be a people who meet that description in your name. So may the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In Jesus' name.